Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. I was doing some writing last night and found myself lamenting that I'm not a faster typer. And I thought to myself, not for the first time, man, I wish I had an extra finger on each hand. I'd be a faster typer, probably wouldn't have given up the saxophone in fourth grade. But then I started thinking about all the drawbacks. I mean, there's a pretty good chance Inigo Montoya is going to try to kill you at some point. But even more importantly, if you have an even number of fingers on each hand, how do you give someone the middle finger? You can't. So no, it turns out that what I want is two extra fingers on each hand. Because then, not only can you flip someone off, but you can also finally get those knuckle tattoos you've always wanted that read Hakuna Matata. That'd be so tough. Anyway, let's talk about a comic book, shall we? Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Rick Heineken. Finley is a very good dog. Crypto is in Metropolis. Ace is chewing on Joker's leg, and Scooby is writing a synopsis. Thanks, Rick. Did they ever do a Scooby-Doo cartoon where he had to play Hamlet because, you know, he's a great Dane? Probably they did. Oh, or they could do a, like, Hamlet and Scooby-Doo crossover, like when Scooby-Doo used to team up with Batman and Robin or the Harlem Globetrotters, only it's Hamlet, and they have to solve a mystery at Castle Elsinore, only when they go to unmask Claudius to see who the real bad guy is, it turns out that Hamlet's already murdered him. That'd be a pretty good cartoon. Anyway, Defenders, number 83, May 1980. End of the Tunnel. Written by Ed Hannigan. Drotted by Don Perlin, inked by Joe Sinnott, lettered by John Costanza, colored by Bob Sharon, and edited by Al Milgram and Mary Jo Duffy. Defensive lineup Valkyrie, Hellcat, Nighthawk, Doctor Strange, Namor the Submariner, The Incredible Hulk, and Arrowica. Previously in the Defenders. On their way home from some complicated nonsense in Las Vegas, Valkyrie and Hellcat ran afoul of some complicated nonsense in New Mexico. They ended up getting captured by an incredibly problematic baboon-headed supervillainous Svengali named Mandrill and his mutant minions, Mutant Force, whose individual names were at least as reductive as their collective name. Kyle Richmond, a.k.a. Nighthawk, was under investigation for gross financial malfeasance and had been warned by the government that if he put on his fancy bird suit to fight crime, he would be arrested. But when he learned his teammates were in danger, he put on an even fancier bird suit and flew to the rescue. Hooray! Upon returning to New York, he was arrested. Hooray! Meanwhile, Doctor Strange had learned of the existence of a mysterious evil entity which posed an existential threat to the entire universe. He called this being the Unmentionable One, on account of its real name had a corrupting influence. I call this being the Underpants Monster, on account of old people sometimes call their underpants their unmentionables. To help him in his fight against the Underpants Monster, Steve called up his old frenemies and fellow original defenders, the Hulk and Namor. 
Unbeknownst to his titular non-teammates, before receiving Steve's astral summons, the Hulk had been visited by a shiny blob of alien goo who worked for the underpants monster. The silvery space barber papa had stuffed his boss's secret name into the Hulk's brain, then erased all memory of the encounter from the Jade Giant's mind before fucking off back to space. Bye, silvery space barber papa! Unaware that a member of their trio was a sleeper agent, the OG Defenders journeyed to the Underpants Monster's homeworld, the high-fantasy bullshit planet known as Tunnel World. The gang was greeted by a mysterious stranger, who introduced himself as Eroika, and offered to act as their guide. Eroika's grim demeanor was undercut somewhat by the fact that he had enormous, goofy-ass wings growing out of the side of his head. At first, our heroes weren't sure if they could trust the wing-headed wanderer, but he tricked them into falling asleep so that he could invade their dreams Freddy Krueger-style and sing a magic song which delivered a metric shit-ton of ridiculous high-fantasy backstory directly into their subconsciouses. The upshot of this Silmarillion worth of melodic exposition was that... <sighs> An indeterminate but seemingly significant amount of high fantasy time ago, a vulture-faced asshole named Yitit Nedian, who worked for the Underpants Monster, created Eroika's race of wingheads so that he and his bird-faced buddies could torture them, exploit their labor, and just generally abuse them. Then as an added fuck you, he gave them enormous non-functioning wings on the sides of their heads as a prank. Between torture sessions, the bird faces made the wingheads build them a giant citadel called Ogion. The wingheads were pretty bummed out about this, but they met a bunch of invisible spirits of pure intellect called the Naya, who taught them how to do the whole invading each other's dream thing so that they could communicate musically in their sleep, and also told them about a prophecy that one day a winghead would get free from Ogion, learn to fly, and help defeat the underpants monster. A little while ago, Eroika got free from Ogion, so decided he was probably the guy from the prophecy, which is why he volunteered to help the defenders. Once they woke up, the gang thanked Eroika for Dennis quading his way into their dreamscapes and decided they could trust him after all. They all snuck into Ogion, where the defenders saw that Yutitnedian had captured Steve's old buddy, Zahooks. Shush? Shusha? Shusha was a powerful wizard who looked like a big furry pile of limbs and eyeballs in a fancy hat. A while ago, he had helped the gang defeat Lunatic with a K, but since then, Yutitnedian and his buzzard-beaked brethren roughed him up pretty bad, stole all his magic stuff, and shoved the multi-limbed mage into a cage. When Hulkson imprisoned Shusha being paraded through town, he flipped the fuck out and started attacking the bird-faced jerkholes. The other defenders and Eroika joined in the fight, but before Hulk could do much smashing, Yutitnedian did some mystical malarkey, and due to the space Papa's cerebral skullduggery, the Hulk immediately switched non-teams. Oh no! Using the Chaos of Battle as cover, Yutitnedian snuck the Hulk and Shusha back to his throne room, and pondered his next move. Meanwhile, when the other wingheads saw Eroika take up arms against their vulture visage victimizers, they decided they wanted in on that action, and a full-blown revolution was soon underway. As the defenders rallied their wing-headed troops, Yutitnedian, who from now on I'm just gonna call Ned, but keep in mind that his name is Yutitnedian, because that's no identity spelled backwards, and it's important to remember that this entire adventure is at hand against thinly-veiled diatribe against collectivism, made the Hulk get decked out in a fancy military outfit, gave him a giant bird to ride around on, and put the Green Goliath in charge of his evil army. Then Ned took Shusha's favorite magical doodad, the Orb of Omenon, and smashed it to bits, partly to be a dick, but mostly because he suspected that the Sorceress Sphere held the secret to defeating his beloved Underpants Overlord. Once the Orb was obliterated, Ned celebrated by smacking around his servants. 
Well, the avian asshole abused his staff, the non-mind-controlled defenders began their assault on the palace. Well, Namor led the wing-headed rebels through the sewers in a raid on the dungeons to free Ned's prisoners, Steve sent his astral projection to try to rescue Shusha. Ghost Steve rolled up on Shusha's cave, but it was a trap! Ned jumped out and started blasting magic lasers at Ghost Steve. Fortunately, Shusha had snuck in a couple of those handy invisible brain goblins, the Naya, and sent them to mess with Ned so Steve could make his escape. Spectral Steve started towards Shusha's cage, but the excessively eyeballed enchanter told him to get out of there and to go get the Orb of Omenin, because even though the sorceress snow globe was all busted up, it still held the key to defeating the underpants monster. Steve did as his formidable furry friend requested and vamoosed, leaving an enraged Ned to take his revenge on Shusha. The vulture-faced villain magic Shush to death. Aww. Unaware of his ally's untimely unaliveness, Steve floated towards the remains of the all-but-obliterated orb, but despite his astral avatar's alleged invisibility, he was soon spotted by a certain emerald erstwhile amigo. Even in his compromised mental state, Hulk recognized Ghost Steve when he saw him, so the brainwashed behemoth hopped on his giant bird and gave chase to the intangible interloper. As Steve fled through the shattered shards of the Orb of Omenin, he noticed an incantation etched into the side of the sphere's metal frame. He read it aloud and suddenly the glass globe reformed just as the Hulk and his avian steed were riding through it, trapping the Jade Giant and his feathered friend inside. Hooray! By this time, Ned had caught up to Ghost Steve and was about to zap the incorporeal conjurer with a mystical murder bolt, but just as he was about to strike, Namor, the wingheads, and a cadre of freed prisoners burst into the room, bonked Ned on the noodle, and tied him up. Hooray! Also, Gadzooks! Will Nighthawk finally face the consequences of his irresponsible behavior? Will Aroika fulfill his lifelong dream and finally learn to fly? And finally, are we finally finished with all of this Tunnel World bullshit? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... No, of course not. He's rich. Yes, but he can only do it inside a magic snow globe, which really seems like kind of a ripoff. And, after this issue, yes. Yes, we are. Hooray! Steve stops ghosting around and pops back into his body. Now that Ned's no longer a threat, he stops by the throne room to see how Shusha is doing. Well, how Shusha is doing is dead, which bums Steve out. He hurries over to the, I guess, throne room? Where the Hulk is all orbed up so that he can check in with Namor and Aroika and also maybe try to figure out where they can buy a factory irregular coffin and a buttload of pennies to place over Shusha's plethora of peepers. The next morning, Aroika holds a big press conference to announce that Ned's reign of terror has finally come to an end. The residents of Ogion seem to have decidedly mixed opinions about this turn of events. None of them were too stoked about the way Ned was running things, but there's also a fair amount of skepticism that Aroika and the Rebels are going to do a better job. wonder if any of the Wingheads saw this coming and advocated for holding the press conference at night so they could have the Q&A inside people's dreams. Yes, I'll take the question from the gentleman two rows back who both is and isn't my dad and is also somehow my fourth grade gym teacher, and then I will sing you a song to explain our new budget proposal. I mean, it's not ideal, but I've seen less coherent press conferences. 
Back on Earth, a shadowy government organization questions the members of Mutant Force that Val, Patsy, and Kyle rounded up a few issues ago. It seems that the government is willing to let the curiously countenanced criminals off with a slap on the wrist if they're willing to take part in a secret mission. Hmm. Just what is the nature of this mission? I don't know. It's a secret. Speaking of scofflaws who are apparently being let off the hook, Kyle has a meeting with his fancy lawyer, who informs him that despite being arrested last issue, the government must want to keep what happened with Mutant Force and Mandrill a secret, because nobody seems to be pressing charges against him right now, and there hasn't been anything in the newspapers about it either. The lawyer goes on to warn the affluent Davian aficionado that he absolutely cannot keep violating the court order that forbids him from dressing up like a bird. But from his attitude, it seems pretty clear that Kyle's takeaway from all this is that repercussions are for people with fewer commas in their bank statements. Fucking Kyle. While Nighthawk is busy stubbornly refusing to learn his lesson, Patsy and Val have decided to use some of his money to go on a shopping spree. Good for them. They're taking a break at a yogurt bar when they hear the telltale sound of someone robbing a bank nearby. The duo of do-gooding devotees of consumer culture rush outside to foil the robbery, but when they return to the yogurt fountain, the yogurt jerk... Okay, I was going for a thing like soda jerk, but yogurt jerk sounds both more insulting and more suggestive than I had intended. Anyway, the guy working at the yogurt store tells them that while they were out crime fighting, somebody swiped their bags. Bummer. Back on Tunnel World, Steve, Namor, Aroika, and a small group of wing-headed warriors drag a trussed-up Ned and a snow globe encapsulated the Hulk on an expedition to the Arctic wasteland at the far end of the world, where one end of the tunnel tapers to a small opening. It is here that they have decided to bury Shusha, so that he might symbolically serve as a guardian, protecting the realm from any outside evil seeking to enter. It's kind of a nice gesture, but the fact that this is also where they have decided to make their final stand against the underpants monster makes it seem more like a matter of expediency. Like, where do you think Grandma would want her ashes spread? Well, I was about to go grocery shopping, so the parking lot to the grocery store? Yeah, Grandma could drive a car and sometimes ate food. I think she'd like that. No sooner do our heroes close the lid on Shusha's distinctive coffin than the underpants monster magics up a furious blizzard. Ned uses the distraction of the snowstorm to escape from his bonds and kills the wing-headed rebel who is guarding him. Steve searches fruitlessly for the fiendish feather-faced fugitive, but to no avail. Fearful that Ned will take advantage of the blinding storm and pick off his allies one by one, Steve quickly hatches a desperate scheme. Knowing that the orb of Omenon cannot be penetrated by the underpants monster's powers, Steve expands the orb and stuffs everyone present inside of it. Um, okay. I mean, on the plus side, they're now shielded from the inclement weather and the underpants monster, which is nice and all. And also, within the confines of the orb, it turns out that the goofy-ass wings growing out of Aroika's head are no longer purely ornamental, which the difficult-to-buy-hats-for-freedom fighter demonstrates by flying around. Good for him. But on the other hand, the gang is now stuck in the bubble with Ned, who is a powerful wizard in his own right, and a still-mind-controlled the Hulk, which definitely goes on the minus column. Plus, it turns out that even though the underpants monster can't get into the dome, he's still in charge of the Hulk and can affect him. 
So the gang's unutterable adversary just goes ahead and gives the Jade Giant a cosmic-sized power-up, making the bounding behemoth nigh-omnipotent within the confines of the orb. Suddenly, the landscape is dominated by a mountain-sized apparition of the Hulk's face. Trippy. What's even trippier is that the regular-sized Hulk swoops down on his flying bird, grabs Ned, and zooms directly into the giant Hulk face's eyeball. Whoa! You can practically hear Jefferson Airplane playing in the background. Steve, Namor, and Aroika follow Hulk and Ned into the giant Hulk's pupil. Once they pass through, the eyelid winks shut. Our heroes find themselves in an entirely different implausible landscape, which they surmise is a manifestation of the Hulk's imagination. Which is odd, because a cursory survey of the scenery reveals a surprising dearth of bean-filled lakes. Weird. The gang has little time to adjust to their new fanciful surroundings, because they soon find themselves under attack by a host of enemies the Hulk has battled in the past. Namor fights the Rhino. A newly airborne Aroika mixes it up with a flying green bird lady named Harpy, and Steve struggles against Crusher Creel, the Absorbing Man. Strange makes short work of his foe, and his allies fare similarly well against their initial opponents. Hooray! Or not so hooray. Because as soon as our heroes dispatch their first round of enemies, they find themselves facing a whole new wave of the Hulk's former adversaries. I'm kind of surprised we don't see conjugation and auxiliary verbs as part of the lineup, but maybe it's only opponents that the Hulk has won his battles against that are in there. Joining the medley of miscreant menaces that attack our protagonists is the regular-sized version of the Hulk himself, who makes a beeline for Namor and starts pummeling the abdominally adroit Atlantean. While watching his fellow defenders go toe-to-toe -to -toe with one another, Steve has a sudden realization. He's like, I'm fighting this battle in the wrong Dennis Quaid movie. I've been trying to dreamscape this fight when I should have been innerspacing it. And with that, the Sorcerer Supreme summons all his mystical might and dispels the illusions of the Hulk's mind, revealing that he is standing in the anatomical reality of the Hulk's brain. Um, okay. After taking a second to find his footing, Steve draws on his years of training in brain surgery to locate the specific part of the brain that contains the memory of the underpants monster's secret name which the space barba papa had implanted in there. Then he does some sorceress surgery and seals off that memory from the rest of the Hulk's mind. Wouldn't be surprised if while he's in there he also maybe zip-ties off the memory of that one time the Hulk walked in on him watching those tiny flame ghosts on the Eye of Agamotto. By the time his mystical neurosurgery is complete, Steve is all tuckered out. He's worried that he might be too sleepy to teleport himself and his companions out of the orb before he succumbs to snooziness, but he ends up doing it right before he passes out. A few minutes later, everybody wakes up. The orb has once again been shattered, but its job has been done. The Hulk is back to his old self. Hooray! Ned is like, Oh yeah? Well, I'll just say the underpants monster's name myself, and then you guys are all hosed. His name is... Uh, shit. It's on the tip of my tongue. I, I want to say Alan? Something like that? Damn it! Now I can't remember it either. 
having dedicated his life to serving an evil master whose name from which he can no longer draw power, Yatitnedian stumbles and falls out of the hole at the end of Tunnel World and into the void. Namor is like, I can fly out there and save him. But Steve is like, no, fuck that guy. Ouch. But I gotta say, for once, kind of with Steve on this. The end. Hooray! Man, I hope the next time Steve decides to do a Dennis Quaid roleplay with the Hulk, they do the reboot of Parent Trap, because I'd like to see adorable twin the Hulks try to get Steve back together with Namor. That sounds pretty heartwarming. And joining us via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going pretty good. How are you going? Well, I guess the good news is we have breathable air for a change, which is pretty rad, and hopefully it'll be a little while before I start taking that for granted again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know what you mean. And the bad news is... Everything else, plus whatever happens within the week and a half between us recording this and it being released. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fair. But the other good news is that I think we're done with Tunnel World. It seems that way, doesn't it? Yeah. So you want to talk about a comic book? Yeah. Why don't we just jump in and uh, talk about this comic book? Corey. What did you think of this comic book? You know, for the amount of shit that we've been talking about this series, I feel like there may be a strange sense of nostalgia now that it is drawing to a close. (laughs) I don't think I'm going to have that. I don't think I'm going to miss this storyline, but I am going to say I liked this issue and I didn't hate the way it wrapped up. Yeah, I mean, despite the no quades allowed policy. (laughs) Oh, man, there was some, like, fucking hard double quade action happening in this. (laughs) Ooh, hard double quade action. That is something. It is. Is it? It almost certainly is. You know the internet, Corey. I I will not Google that. Yeah, the inner space kind of wrap up. And, you know, this is maybe the first time that I remember seeing Doc Strange use his actual doctor skills. It's happened before, but never in conjunction with his magical skills, the way we see in this issue. Like, he is using his magic to do brain surgery on the Hulk after turning the dreamscaping of the Hulk into an inner spacing of the Hulk. And it's impressive, and it actually kind of works. Yeah, the story has a little bit of a Philip K. Dickiness feel to it in a way that I'm generally not crazy about, where there's a little bit of a vibe of, oh, I kind of wrote myself into the corner here, so it's super trippy, everybody does drugs, and then the end. Mm -hmm. But in a way that actually, I think, kind of works. I think as long as you don't overthink it. Right. Like, you just kind of let the weirdness wash over you, because otherwise you you do kind of get tripped up with the, wait, how does this work? Okay, so they're in an orb that's the Hulk's imagination, but it's also a magical orb, but then they're inside the Hulk's brain, literally, but also his imagination, and then there's surgery. Okay, 
Yeah, I think we should be fine as long as we don't have to spend an hour talking about this comic book. Okay. Oh, no! (laughs) (laughs) What have we done? So Val stabs a car. She does with the pointy end of her sword. I know, finally. Nice job. Right through the engine block, too. That's amazing. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, though, so the car is, they're trying to take off. They're probably accelerating pretty rapidly. She is so strong because, like, if I was just trying to hold on to a car by the hilt of a sword and it came to a crashing stop like that, I would most certainly tumble right off the hood and probably hit my head pretty bad. Yeah, that happened the one time I tried to hang on to the hood of a car as it was trying to speed off with me on the hood. Oh, I fell off the roof of a car once trying to hang on to it. Yeah, but you were working with the driver rather than against him, right? Oh, right. And I was a child and you were a grown-up in your situation. Yeah, you were more teen wolfing. I was more TJ hookering. (laughs) Wow, we got a Shatner Shatner versus Fox situation here. Oh, my. Or Bateman? No. Thank you. Don't sell yourself short, Corey. (laughs) Shant. So in your version, you are going through the woods playing Stuntman Bill? Stuntman Bill, yep. Which is the game you play when children have access to a motor vehicle and try to climb on top of it as they drive through the woods? I hope our parents aren't listening to this. I think they still don't know about that. My version was I was waiting tables and somebody tried to pull a dine and dash and I thought they had honestly just forgotten to pay their bill. So I ran outside and was like, hey, you guys forgot. And then I saw them like heads down, avoiding eye contact, jumping in their car. So like I stood in front of their car and I pounded on the hood and was like, hey, get back in there and pay. And then they accelerated. And so I just like I jumped on the hood and hung on for as long as I could, which was not very long. It was maybe a little under a block and they sped off and I fell off and it wasn't great. I think TJ Hooker probably convinced a whole generation of us that that would be easier than it is. Yeah, at no point did I have the decision-making process of, I'm going to hang on to the hood. It was, they started going forward, I was in front of them, I was like, I'd rather not get run over, so I went up instead of under. That's wise. It seemed so at the time. Really, the smart thing to have done would have been to not stand in front of a car for $20 bill that I didn't even get, you know? Yeah, but I don't know. Like, because when they started driving towards you, I'm sure the few seconds when that happened, like your brain's still processing, right? Like they can't actually be doing this. (laughs) I think that was a big part of it. Yeah. And then it was just bad, dumb instincts. Yeah. Well, that's like so much of life is (laughs) disbelief punctuated by bad, dumb instincts. That's what keeps us alive. (laughs) It's amazing that it has kept us specifically alive, (laughs) given our specific bad, dumb instincts. Uh, I am constantly amazed that all of you guys survived the stuntman Bill years. Yeah, it really makes me feel like um, supervision is overrated for children. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. It, It could go either way, because part of me does feel like, yeah, and you were just fine. And part of me is like, Oh, children should never be unsupervised at all if that's the shit they're going to do. Yeah, I mean, when I was parenting, I was horrified at the prospect (laughs) of what was possible because I knew all of the 
things that I had survived, like Stuntman Bill. Yeah, or, you know, Lawn Dart Catch. Or... Yep. <laughs> yep, the moving target. <laughs> Archery with a moving target. Oh, boy. That was bad. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the takeaway of this is it's probably a good thing neither of us had access to a magic sword. That's really what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Just wouldn't have ended well. Yeah, but in the hands of Val, pretty great. Pretty great. Yeah, so that all happened as part of a brief, like, two or three page New York City interlude from the Tunnel World main story. Let's take a look at a couple of the other things that happened in the New York City part. One, Valkyrie and Patsy attend a yogurt bar. I was very confused by this. The fact that there was a yogurt bar, or? Yeah, the fact that there was a yogurt bar in New York in 1980, because there wasn't yet soft serve frozen yogurt so was this just yogurt is this like a savory yogurt bar oh i don't think those are a thing i didn't think regular yogurt bars were a thing i assumed it yeah it was like a frozen like a healthy version of a ice cream shop but that hadn't been invented yet I don't think on a major scale like tcby was the first company to make like stable soft serve frozen yogurt like there was frozen yogurt before that but it was literally just i think yogurt that was frozen like a popsicle and it was super gross and i kind of remember it a little bit mm -hmm. and so tcby didn't come out with that until 1982 and that was when it started being franchised around the country so before then i mean i think there was kind of like bad frozen yogurt but I don't think it was a craze. Yogurt itself was definitely taking off as a health food, sparked in part by those Dannon commercials that we talked about that were about like Georgian yogurt that came up in, a, in an oh. earlier Defenders issue. Oh, yeah, I remember that. But yogurt bars, if you take frozen out of the equation, it just seems like a bizarre thing to do. Wow, you put so much more thought into that than I did. I was just like, oh, it's just like they're tired from shopping and wanted to get a treat. Yeah, there wasn't like a pink berry or anything back then. No, but I did misread the sign. So the yogurt shop has the remarkably unimaginative name yogurt parlor. Mm -hmm. But the last part of the word parlor is kind of like weirdly rendered. So I thought it said yogurt parade. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's a pretty great name for a yogurt shop. <laughs> yeah, I'd be down for that. Maybe after shenanigans takes off <laughs> we can reinvest in yogurt parade or i mean depending on how kinky we want to get at shenanigans there could be a literal yogurt parade within the restaurant Oof, that's gonna be tough on the carpets oh good point yeah it's only a matter of time now before this shenanigans pans <laughs> out man can't wait so I, yeah, I spent way too much time thinking about the yogurt bar and the idea that maybe it was a savory yogurt bar and how unsettling I found that idea. I think even if it's not a savory, even if you're making like yogurt parfaits, I guess that's better, but it still seems weird. Yeah, I mean, savory yogurt, unless it's, I feel, an ingredient in something else, or maybe just like as a condiment, like a substitution for sour cream. Yeah, or like tzatziki. Yeah, you're not just going to sit down and be like, I'll have a garlic yogurt, please. It basically does make it seem as though they are just, as a treat to themselves, sidling up to a sour cream bar and saying, hit me, barkeep. 
Oof, can't get enough of those probiotics. Mm. Man, we really don't want to talk about Tunnel World, do we? <laughs> well, okay, so a couple of the other things that happened in New York are Patsy brings up her mom again, which seems like it is almost certainly now foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. The other New York part that we get, we get a really brief interlude where we find out that Mutant Force, formerly the second version of Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, is not being charged by the government if they form some kind of a suicide squad type situation. The government needs them for a mission. And that was a little bit intriguing, but mostly my takeaway from that was, Peepers! I thought we were done with him, but there he is. I know. I can't imagine sitting across the table from that guy, like, trying to have a negotiation. I also, just in that panel where they're all sitting on the table, it's like, it's really cute. I don't know. They kind of look like school children who are in big trouble at the principal's office. Mm -hmm. And Shocker's lobster claws, like, it is the stupidest, funniest, most nonsense. Not most, but it's, it's up there. Like, why this guy has lobster claws and how that relates to his electrical powers. Yeah, every time I see them, I am just reminded of it and like, right, yeah, he has lobster claws because of his electrical abilities. Mm-hmm. Okay. And like, how pointy are they? Like, does he have a fly to unzip? Are there other like activities he needs to be careful about with those? It seems very inconvenient. It really, really does. I wonder if at any point he needs to just for safety's sake, put giant rubber bands around them. How would he get them off? Good question. I think he'd have to rely on peepers for that and, you know, keep a supply of grapes nearby to bribe him. Mm -hmm. Do you remember, gosh, what was it called? Like Davidson's Seafood or something? It was like one of those places that has the the big open top, kind of like an aquarium with a whole bunch of lobsters in. You could go pick out your lobster. Uh, I don't remember that place specifically, but I know what you're talking about with places like that. So as a kid, I would always see the lobsters in there with the rubber bands on them and be like oh thank goodness like otherwise it'd be really scary to put your hands in there but then i was also like wait a minute this is somebody's job like Mm -hmm. what a terrifying job to just have to wrestle these lobsters all day long and you know put rubber bands on them yeah it seems unpleasant unless they are able to work out a situation where like you know sometimes in the action movie the cops will just like toss a pair of handcuffs across the room while they hold the Guy at gunpoint and says, cuff yourselves. I wonder if they ever try that with the lobsters. Uh. Just their hands hovering near the temperature knob and they're like, all right, boys, cuff yourselves. Yeah, it could be. I mean, I, I don't know. I never tried to reason with a crustacean, but it's generally a losing proposition. One would think. We also see a very brief interlude where maybe Kyle isn't in as much trouble as we thought he was. We get that he confirms his libertarianism, or at least his lawyer does, in a piece of dialogue that I rather enjoyed. Besides, what right has the court to order me not to assume my superhero identity? What does that have to do with the financial investigation against me? Listen. This isn't the libertarian paradise you might like it to be, Richmond. I liked that, and I liked having the confirmation of my theory that Kyle Richmond is a libertarian, because Mm -hmm. that absolutely fits. Yeah, and like his dialogue at first read is, you know, kind of goofy and potentially like innocent sounding, but really he's like, 
what do you mean I can't open carry like one of the most deadly weaponized flying suits known to man? Oh, God. Do you think he's going to replace his cape with one of those don't tread on me flags? Yeah. His lawyer's just like, oh, Kyle, got to move to New Hampshire. <laughs> yeah, no shit. I bet his lawyer's also like, Kyle, why do you always insist that we meet in this recording studio? <laughs> Does look like that. Doesn't it look like he's about to cut a fucking album? Like he's he's hopped up on the chair like he's going to like break into like a Neil Diamond song. Well, it goes with the outfit, too. He's, he looks pretty sharp. He really does. I wonder if it's like a cost-saving measure. He's like, you know what? I'm just going to save some time. They call me One Take Kyle, so I'm just going to hop in the booth, and uh, when we're done having our meeting, you just hit record and watch me do my thing. <laughs> I bet. I bet, And I bet he's not very good. Like, he thinks he's really good, but he's not that good. I can see it going either way. Oh, like he's a real Neil Diamond sound-alike? I don't know. This topic or things related to it might come up later. Ah, okay, okay. There was also a little foreshadowing in uh, another previous conversation we had, just FYI. Hmm. Mystery. Intriguing. All right, let's get down to Brass Tunnel World. I knew it would come to this. (laughs) Well, after we revisit it this time, I don't think we have to go back. Also, there's some kind of interesting stuff that happens here. One of the first things that we get is that I kind of dug the idea that after the revolution, not everybody is super stoked. Like, it kind of makes you think that, oh, do the defenders not have an exit strategy? Like, did they just think they would be greeted as liberators in Tunnel World and not really think this through? But you see all the different factions of people who had, for strategic reasons, maybe aligned themselves a little bit with Yitit Nedian and other people who are just like, well, sure, it's nice that you deposed him, but now I guess Arrowik is in charge. He's probably going to be a tyrant. There was some weird bantering back and forth, and I actually thought that was interesting and lent some texture to the world. Yeah, it did. It was it was kind of funny playing on that. Not necessarily that idea of those who would exchange their freedom for security deserve neither, but is that the quote? Something like that. But, um, you know, more so this idea of, like, it's actually better to live in fear of persecution and stepping out of line than it is to live under any sort of uncertainty. Hmm. These people are like, I would just rather know things are totally shitty and that that's how it's going to be than have to figure out a new system. Yeah, and... On a smaller scale, I think I've certainly experienced similar things with when I've had like a job that I super hated, but I'd been there for a long time. And so it was terrible, but it was comfortable. The idea of change can be very scary. And I think it is kind of realistic to show people feeling that way. And you also did get the impression that some of these dudes were kind of like, I don't know, Vichy France, like sympathizing with Yitit Nedian in that way. Mm -hmm. It was just interesting to see the factionalization like that. Yeah, it was. It's, I, I thought it, it added, like you said, a little depth to it. It wasn't such a one-dimensional, like, hey, revolution's great. And everybody's going to be super stoked that it went down the way that it did. Yeah. You also get the art, again, I think does a lot of the heavy lifting with investing me in the story of Tunnel World and adding enough background details that are just 
weird and interesting that they are clearly having fun with that it sucked me into the story more and made it more of an immersive experience. Mm-hmm. It's once again Don Perlin and Joe Sinnott. And that scene where you see all of the different creatures talking about their different reactions to the revolution, there was just some weird character design on those guys and some real thought put into like what kind of clothes they were wearing. And like, there's the one dude who looks like a green version of Ice T from Tank Girl as the mutant kangaroo. I dug seeing that. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> you see what I'm talking about? Yeah, I didn't put that together, but I, I see it clear as day. Another example of that is on the opening page in the lower right-hand corner. Steve is just like coming back into his body after having been Ghost Steve for a lot of the last episode. And you see in the corner there is a sewer rat, but it is a lemur-eyed, web-footed, two-tailed sewer rat. And it's just like, oh shit. You know that wasn't in the script. That was the artist being like, okay, what would a sewer rat look like in this world? And it's just a really neat touch. Yeah, my notes there, I accidentally rhymed hideous with amphibious. Oh. Because <laughs> they are really creepy and ugly. I don't know why having two tails on a rat... Oh, I know why. It's because it reminds me of earwigs, which freak me out. Ah, Yeah. Keep Ricardo Montalban away from those guys. Don't know what he'd get up to with fuckers like those. Oh, no. Speaking of the art team, I think I shared with you outside of the podcast, we got some feedback from a friend of the show and incidentally cousin, Jason, about I think I was musing aloud the differences between, you know, layout versus pencils and uh, inks versus finishers. He pointed out that, so Perlin, in this case, doing layout that's generally more of like a rough pencil drawing and then the finishers like senate will come in and basically tighten it up add some inks and add their own touch on it so awesome collaboration between the two to come up with this yeah it really is yeah jason shared that yeah in his experience that the nomenclature there does generally mean what i think we had kind of landed on last issue that if it's listed as finishes instead of inks that means the inker is doing a little bit more of the heavy lifting in the work breakdown but it was nice to have confirmation on that and yeah i totally agree uh perlin and sinnet work really really well together in this issue especially just you get some bizarre images that i'm not ever entirely sure if they should work but they kind of do like we talked about before with the whole gang double Dennis Quading the Hulk's brain, where, uh, yeah, they go from a dreamscape to an inner space, but damn, that is a trippy image, which we see mirrored on the cover of the issue, which is also very good. Yeah, it's like layers within layers of weirdness, but this part where they're in the orb mm -hmm. and their Hulk's giant face like is on the horizon. And they're like, oh, yeah, now, of course, we just have to fly into his eyeball so we can enter his mind because we're already in his imagination. I was like, what? <laughs> How did she all just be like, that's the thing to do? And then Hulk's giant eyelid, like, boom, like smashes closed after they fly through like a, a door shutting and trapping them in. It's like very interesting, very weird. Yeah, it really is. There are some things about that that actually make more sense within the context of the Marvel Universe continuity than you might expect. There are a couple of not quite callbacks, but things that almost mirror 
things that happened in the first issue of Doctor Strange's solo comic book. One of those is the way that they are drawn into the world of the Orb of Omenin is very, very similar to the way that in that issue, Doctor Strange gets drawn into the Orb of Agamotto, and that there is a whole cosmosphere taking place inside of that orb. And so I think it kind of makes sense if you're like, oh yeah, okay, that's what orbs do. Another thing that is talked about in this is that the underpants monster can't directly influence events inside of the orb because the orb is good and he's super evil. But because the Hulk is already his cat's paw, he can get purchase within the Hulk and he can affect the Hulk in there. And so that's why he makes the Hulk super big and powerful within the orb. That is also a concept that gets kind of brought up in that issue of Doctor Strange, where there is an outside magician who makes a bunny rabbit within the house that has been conjured in there get super huge and break the window because he can affect the bunny rabbit because the bunny rabbit had been conjured into the house. So there is some mirroring of stuff happening there that I I think made it less nonsensical within the context of the Marvel Universe than it might seem at first. Mm -hmm. Another thing, too, that was intriguing about it was this concept that, you know, the underpants monster's greatest strength was that he could exist as an idea. Mm-hmm. And, you know, isn't that true? Like, there's so much of the shitty things that humans do to one another are propagated by somebody sharing an idea with another person. And then once that cat's out of the bag, good luck getting it back in, you know? Yeah. It's kind of had that feel to it also. Like, what happens if, uh, I don't know, the Hulk gets into an accident and the synapses that uh, Strange lasered together bust open and Underpants gets back out. Yeah. I mean, it seems not implausible. Although this is Steve we're talking about, a guy who canonically left a doomsday machine under a tarp on a beach in Maine. So I think this is at least slightly better than that. But back to the Yitit Nedian representing an idea thing, you do get some underlining of what that bad idea might be. And more and more, this does seem like it is a screed against communism or collectivism in any way. You get more underlining of the fact that Yatitnedian is no identity, that he has subsumed his identity to this greater force. And that is the true root of his evil and what makes him so bad and insidious. You have literally the phrase, Yatitnedian has no identity, no identity. It is this close to saying, get it? After that, that's yeah, my notes actually say, get it, get it. (laughs) (laughs) So I think, yeah, between that and having the one of the heroes of the book be described as a libertarian, I think you do get more of an idea, the context in which this book was created and kind of the idea of the writer towards these thoughts, which it's good to have the confirmation on that. But it is also like, oh, okay. Mm hmm. Yeah, and further that Ned, can we call him Ned again? Yeah, let's. That Ned is essentially cast to his death, and, you know, Namor's like, oh shit, we should, like, try and grab him before he falls into that void, and they're just like, no, it's okay. He liked the communists, so fuck him. Pretty much. I will say, it is interesting in that panel where Ned is 
tumbling into the void. It is the first time I've seen this happen with a word bubble. You see his scream trailing off into the tail of the word bubble connecting to his mouth. I don't think I've ever seen that before. Oh, yeah. Like, don't forsake me! And the E's follow down in the little cone to his mouth, which I think is a nice technique and, and worked pretty well. Yeah, speaking of, you know, playing with the way that text is, is presented and how it works with the movement and what's going on in the panels, that bit of, gosh, I don't even know how to describe it, kind of like strobe light oppositesville effects when Strange figures out like, oh, wait a minute, I need to just go in and like stop accepting this imagination reality that we've all been placed under by the underpants guy. Yeah, it's it's on page 26, and it is a hell of a thing. It's so hard to read, but but worth struggling through it. It, it is, and I, I specifically remember thinking, wow, that is a heck of a job for the letterer as well. But yeah, the layouts of it, it, it is, it creates a strobe effect where you have like layered and fractured negative images like breaking up throughout the panel, and yeah, and that it follows the word bubbles too, and the thought bubbles. It creates such a weird, like, kind of art deco strobe effect that really does lend to the surreality of there's weird magic and maybe psychedelics happening here. Yeah, super strange. Very evocative of the strangeness that uh, is going on. What did you think of all of the bad guys that the Hulk has living in his brain? So they were familiar. I wasn't sure why. I mean, I guess the harpy one makes sense because Arawika needs a winged opponent. Mm-hmm. And I guess Rhino is kind of like a, a Hulk stand-in. By the way, the way Rhino is drawn, I didn't recognize him in that first panel where they introduce him because he's like running right at the viewer, which distorts his Rhino horn to be even more phallic than it would otherwise be. Yeah, he just looks like a dildo-headed Garanimal. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty much what I was thinking. I was like, oh, that's what? Yeah, you are absolutely right about that. And then it is interesting, the choice of villains, and I think it speaks more to who were the prominent villains in the Hulk at that time. Because, yeah, you definitely see the, the Rhino and then the Absorbing Man Crusher Creel. And Harpy, I think, was a bigger deal. Her alter ego was... Betsy Ross, the Hulk's longtime love interest, oh, okay. uh, who got all gamma radiated and stuff. It is weird. Her name is misspelled in this, so she is Harpy with an I-E, whereas generally in the Marvel Universe, she's just regular Harpy with a Y. But it did make me just be like, is har- the word Harpy copyrighted or something that both DC and Marvel have to spell it weird? But it was just a typo in this one issue, I think. Oh, okay. And yeah, then you get the one panel where it's just a lineup of different Hulk antagonists. And you see a couple of heroes in there, which I think makes sense. You've got Thor and you got Doc Samson there as well. Mm-hmm. And I had to look up who one of the guys was. I thought it was maybe one of the mindless ones, but... The double-faced guy? Yeah, do you know what his name is? No, I it was just thought it was like a new made-up guy. That's a really pretty interesting... We'd never see, like vertical double facing it's always horizontal i feel like side by side rather than top on top yeah it is a weird design and the character has a name that i think would have a very different connotation if it had been created a little bit later his name is by beast 
<laughs> okay. Which I think is just a whole different subculture now. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. As I said, we also get the Absorbing Man, who is kind of a favorite of mine. There was a recent arc that was in a Black Bolt comic book by Saladin Ahmed that was really, really good, which features the death of the Absorbing Man. But, I mean, he's probably not dead forever or whatever, but it it actually, like, made me cry a little bit. It was really, really well done, which is weird because he is just such a generally goofy character. Are you familiar with the Absorbing Man at all? Just from his appearance uh, earlier on in the in this series, I think mm-hmm. he sh- he shows up like once, maybe. I remember his wrecking ball and the construction. Uh... The wrecking crew. Yeah, he's adjacent to the wrecking crew, but he's not actually part of it. He's a different guy. The guy on that is like Thunderball, who has the ball and chain thing. So I got him conflated with Thunderball. <laughs> I think maybe it's possible they were both in there, and I just don't remember though. But his is that it's chained to his leg because it's a prison ball because he broke out of prison Uh, and it's not a wrecking ball. But yeah, he can absorb and turn into any other substance that he absorbs, which has been used some pretty goofy ways over the years. In one of his early appearances, like they tricked him into absorbing helium and then he just floated off into space and everybody was like, bye, asshole. (laughs) That's a good trick. Not as good as a later trick, where I guess it's not really a trick, but it is definitely the most surreal use of his powers. He got shot by the Punisher when he was in his regular human form and was bleeding out, so he went to a bad guy friend of his house and got the advice like, okay, you need to turn into something that can't bleed. So he decided he wanted to turn into something like powdery so that his body would just reconfigure itself constantly, which makes sense. But he turned himself into a pile of cocaine (laughs) because he was at a bad guy's house, so there was just a pile lying around. And then the other bad guys turned a fan on and separated him out into little packets and sold him on the street. Oh, no. And then people who did that cocaine briefly got his powers. Whoa. is a very odd storyline that is a very odd storyline you think that people that that took the cocaine were, were like realized they were they're like man or you know i actually have superpowers or we're just like man this stuff is really good <laughs> yeah i could see it going either way i could see them being like man i feel like i got superpowers but i always kind of feel like that when i do this yeah now let me tell you guys an interesting story about myself <laughs> Wait, 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 wait. Let me repeat that joke I just made because uh, you're not laughing at it. So I should probably say it louder because I assume you didn't hear me. Yeah. Yeah. That's the stuff. So we also see uh, the leader. Yeah. Are you familiar with him at all? I feel like I am familiar with a tripod fight scene at some point, but it may have been a different one. Yeah, I think it was. The leader isn't always synonymous with the tripod thing. His deal is that he received a similar gamma radiation treatment to the Hulk, but it made him super smart instead of super strong. And he's got a little John Waters mustache and a giant green head and is a little skinny guy. Man, he needs to join uh, Mutant Force with that name. You'd think. Yeah, it would be a good fit. 
I wrote. And then things get weird. <laughs> they fly through the Hulk's eye. Yeah. Yeah, it's like they're going into, like, the dopest miniature golf course in the universe. And I just, it was also amusing to me that, like, for whatever reason, that was where I drew the line. <laughs> things <laughs> beginning to get weird. I get it, though. It, it is definitely a weird story. And honestly, as much as I kind of dug it and I'm super relieved that it's over, the buildup towards the underpants monster and that this is the payoff is super anticlimactic. I know. I wanted to see him rendered. Yeah. And find out that his name's like Barry or whatever. Mm hmm. It's like we got Kaiser Soze the whole way, but we didn't get to figure out who he actually was. I know. I mean, we do get to find out that Tunnel World tapers at one end towards a much smaller opening, which means that really it seems like it should be called Funnel World. Ah. But I think the reason it's not called Funnel World is because people probably, when it was called that, kept showing up and expecting there to be funnel cakes. And Ned is just like, no, no funnel cakes. I'm a bird and therefore an asshole. <laughs> and then just broke off the F and taped it on to the left side of the top of the F and made it into a tunnel world so that people would stop showing up and wanting funnel cakes. You know, I had almost as an elaborate thought <laughs> about the end of it, which was that that kind of snowy scene as the world tapers to a close. I was like, it's kind of like a giant like um, cardboard tube from the roll of paper towels that maybe when you're in high school in your parents' basement, you shoved some dryer sheets into the end of to <laughs> keep the weed smoke from going upstairs. Like, mm. it's just concentrated all of the strangeness at the, oh. at, at the end of this <laughs> tube. And then I kind of abandoned the metaphor. But <laughs> No, I think that makes a lot of sense also. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we get into the minutiae, I did want to bring up the letters column because there is some interesting shit that goes down in it. Did you read the letters page? I didn't have access in my copy to that, unfortunately. Okay. It's a weird one. Kind of atypically, the entire letters column is dealing with one specific letter. And it's a long one that is mostly complaining about the Omega the Unknown storyline, which is mostly how the last issue's letter column went as well. Except for, as I said, this is just one long letter. And it's fucking great. It was so cathartic to see the creative team being taken to task, not just for that story, but for recent Defender stories in general, in a way that I was like, yes, I'm not the only person who had issues with this. The letter is by a woman named Kat Ironwood, who was a very prolific letter writer and was also a writer within the comics fandom community and went on to become a comics historian and also published, I think, some of her own comic work as well. But the highlights of it are, for me at least, who is editing this magazine? This kind of sheer, unadulterated, bogus nincompoopery looks like the work of rank amateurs. Whoa. <laughs> so good. <laughs> and the other part that I absolutely loved is she ended it with, and this is in all caps. The rest of the letter is not in all caps. 
And if you don't like my opinion, you can do better next time because I'd rather write a nice letter. Oh, that is a good way to end it, man. It is, and I feel for her so much because it really does sound like her just being like, please let me love this thing that I want to love. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Damn, that resonates. <laughs> it really does. But I really appreciated her letter. What I appreciated less was the response, which is there is a little bit of like, yeah, well, I can see why you had some issues with some of the stuff that we did in that. But also some like, well, what we were really doing was this in a way that it was never implied that they were trying to do that. But I think the part that clanged for me the most is, let's see, who's editing this book? Why? Al Milgram and Joe Duffy, of course. We thought everyone knew that. Okay, here's the thing about that. Al Milgram is listed as the editor on the whole run that we've done. Joe Duffy was co-editing all of these, but she was never credited. This is the first time, I think, that her name has been credited as the editor on these, and it's to throw her under the bus, which is is some bullshit. Yeah, that is shitty. I mean, I don't think that was necessarily the intent, but that is definitely how it comes across. And I thought everybody knew that. How was everybody supposed to know that? You never fucking credited her. I don't know enough about that situation to know if it was... If she had decided that she would prefer not to be credited, it seems unlikely, but it is at least a possibility. I know that uh, Mary Screenies, who was Steve Gerber's co-writer on some of my favorite of his work, had in previous work at DC co-written stuff with Steve Skates and asked that her name not be credited, in part because she was having issues with the editor Joe Orlando and thought that her work might not be treated fairly if her name was on it. So maybe it's possible that something similar was going on with Mary Jo Duffy, but either way, it's a shitty way to introduce the fact that she has been editing these issues when it is only brought up when the work is being criticized. Mm-hmm. Boo. Boo indeed. And on that happy note, you ready to get into the minutia? Why not? Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Yes. Thank you. So, Corey, what do you feel like starting off with? Why don't we start with sound effects? Okay, Corey, what was your favorite sound effect? I don't know why this one stuck out to me so much, but on my page numbering is is different than yours. I I think it's maybe 15 or 16. It's the fight scene with Harpy inside of Hulk's imagination. Mm -hmm. And uh, Doctor Strange zings her with a mystic projection of some sort, and it makes the noise... Fwizzik, which I liked because I thought of it as having a quality of singeing feathers from mm. the sound. I can see that. It also sounds kind of like Andre the Giant's character's name from The Princess Bride, Fezzik. Oh, yeah, yeah. Anybody want a peanut? Yeah, okay. No, I liked that one a lot, too. I think my favorite is... Val stabbing the radiator as she stands on the car hood, and it makes the noise, Kara Clash! That was my backup. Pretty good stuff. Speaking of 
sounds. Behold or be gone, a night of karaoke with Kyle. Oh man, do I have to? I don't have to sing, right? It's up to you. No, I'm not a. I'm not a. I don't do that. But if I can just go be a fly on the wall for that, hell yeah. I mean, worst case, I just leave. Right. Because <laughs> it's insufferable. Best case, I get a bunch of top shelf good free drinks because he's mm-hmm. buying, of course. And either way, you know, if if he really is like fully channeling Neil Diamond or whoever and pulls it off, that's fun. Mm-hmm. And if he's terrible, that's fun too. I don't really see a downside here. I am honestly in the same boat. I generally do not want to hang out with Kyle, but as you said, he's definitely buying the drinks and he is looking to impress, so I am getting top shelf. Also, having run karaoke for a long time, I worked as a KJ for quite some time, I will say that the talent of the performer has very little to do with the quality of the karaoke performance. It is far more tied to lack of inhibition. And I think Kyle, whatever other faults he has, being self-conscious is not one of them. And so he's going to be fucking going for it, which Mm. is really all you want in a karaoke performance. Like whether or not the person can sing, if they are trying their hardest, it is fun to watch. And Kyle is going to be going for it because whatever else he does, he always fucking goes for it and doesn't have any maybe I shouldn't do this filters on him. He's definitely got a flair for the dramatic and he is going to be giving it his all. And uh, I want to see what comes out of that guy. What song do you think he's going to sing? Oh, man. Maybe uh, because he thinks that this country is the greatest place for libertarians. We'll do that Neil Diamond coming to America song. Ooh, that is a quality song, I gotta say. It's got a catchy vibe. Uh-huh. I can see him doing some Neil Diamond and actually doing a pretty good job with it. I can also see him just, I mean, whatever else he's got, he's got the hubris. So, like, I can see him trying to go for it with some Celine Dion type shit. I could see him trying to sing the darkness, like trying to transition into that falsetto. Like, I think it's going to be something with a high degree of difficulty. So I I thought we had to stay in the the like contemporaneous to 1980, the 80s. Yeah. Did they have karaoke in 1980 in America? Oh, I don't know. I think that's a later phenomena. Oh, Okay. Okay. I don't know. I, I think either way, yeah, I think I think it's going to be a good time. I think he's too uptight to try and sing The Darkness. He doesn't even know who they are. I think you're right about that, actually, given that his musical taste veers towards easy listening and specifically Muzak. Yeah, he's going to be all Manilo all the time. Ooh, yeah, I think you're probably right. Maybe not Mandy. I, I see him getting into maybe some uh, ready to take a chance again, something like that. Hmm. Yeah, maybe a little, uh, I don't know, Neil Sadaka. I can see some Sadaka coming out of that guy. I can see him, ooh, maybe hitting some uh, Perry Como. (laughs) Yeah. Either way, good stuff. Yeah, okay, well, see you there. Okay, yeah, yeah, Para Beholds. What was your favorite panel? Yeah, this, this one, 
much like this issue, got a little weird. I think my favorite panel, it's like it was a toss up between one that was a sad one and one that was a happy one. The sad one was, I guess it would be page two, and it's the like kind of zooming in on dead Zhoosh. Mm hmm. Or Zooks. Zahooks. I think Shusha. Shusha. It's just so sad because he's really, it's his death is well rendered. Like you can tell he's not sleeping, but. All of his one, two, three, four, five eyes that you can see are shut, and you know his three limbs are all akimbo and kind of like clutching. It's just such a fucking bummer. And then Steve's like poking his head through the bars, just like holy fucking shit, he's dead. Yeah, I don't know. It's a pretty powerful panel. I'm glad I don't have to read his dialogue, but I didn't want him to die. It is also possible just that position that he's collapsed you would think he would collapse towards the bars of the gate which would mean that maybe those aren't his eyeballs it's possible that we're just looking at like six buttholes oh well that's that's also sad agreed <laughs> what was your favorite panel <laughs> gosh i i had the six buttholes but i mean go ahead and top that damn it's a lot of buttholes Corey. Gosh, there really were a lot to choose from. Uh, I think for me it comes down to, I really did like the opening panel with the bizarre-looking two-tailed amphibious sewer rat. I think my favorite is probably, I would have a difficult time picking out which one, but we talked about the bizarre strobe light art deco panels. Mm. I think the last one of those on page 25 is definitely up there. It's just such a arresting image and is able to convey something really difficult to convey and does a good job of it. I also think the panel of them all flying towards the giant The Hulk face on page 16 is so good and so weird, and it really does look like they're just getting ready to play the world's dopest miniature golf hole, and uh, I really liked that. Yeah, I love that one too. It's got like those surreal kind of pink cotton candy clouds all floating around in front of Hulk's face and they're flying over what looks like, I don't know, ice or broken mirrors. And it's, man, it is bizarre. Mm -hmm. And you also see the shadow of the Hulk and Ned riding on the Nilfim flying towards his eyeball. And just like that, like Hulk within a Hulk within an orb. It's a mind fuck, but it's a good one. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> cool. You said your backup was the many buttholes of dead Shusha. Uh, what was your favorite? It was the happy ending sunshine time panel <laughs> where they're just walking away from the sunset, not into it, looking pleased. And the sun is shining and it has never shined there before. Well, the underpants guy was in charge, and it just it leaves you with a thank God it's over, but it's ending on a high note. Yeah, it's the four main characters of this arc walking towards us, and it is the panel more than any other that I kept imagining different background music behind, because mm. it seems like that is like a very cinematic moment where it's just like, and yeah, it's either like the... It's Magnificent dun, Seven dun, music. Dun, dun. Yep. Could be Magnificent Seven. I could also see like the 
opening to Reservoir Dogs if it's Little Green Bag. I kept envisioning different musical cues happening behind it. The Space Jam song. <laughs> hit him high, hit him high, hit him high. Oh, that's such a good song. <laughs> I love how Hulk is also just tossing off his tunic, just like, ah. Yeah, fuck this. Clothes? Seriously? I don't know what just happened, but I can tell from this shit it wasn't good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a joyful panel. It is. Both joyful and triumphant. Like, mm. yeah, it's nice. Like the song. <laughs> yeah, like Hit em High, the Monstars anthem. What was your pie not made out of steel? What words did you like best in this issue? Much like you would like a pie if it were not made out of steel. I had two of them, and neither was necessarily chosen for the prose, which I know is kind of countered to the the thing for this category but the confirmation that yes indeed kyle is a big libertarian <laughs> from the lawyer <laughs> listen this isn't the libertarian paradise you'd like it to be kyle and i guess also just see, seeing him get dressed down a little bit by his own counsel was mm-hmm. satisfying so that was definitely in the top two the other one i had i chose because it was just namor being namor which is always a lot of fun Mm-hmm. And it's part of the banter between him and Doctor Strange when the battle starts turning in their favor. And he says, I, Doctor, if all are as ineffectual as this blundering buffoon, we have little to worry about. <laughs> that was a very nice moment. I liked that, too. I really enjoyed, just in terms of characters being themselves, the opening thought bubble that Doctor Strange has, where he's, Little do my allies know that their attack on the stronghold would not have succeeded had I not been there harassing Yotinetian and his forces. Yeah, typical Steve. It totally is. I also really, really liked Patsy's line, which Patsy also liked, (laughs) where she says, I knew that you Valkyries from Valhalla couldn't be grim Grundies all the time. And Val says, you certainly have a way with words. And Patsy says, yeah, I know. My talents are many. Hey, let's grab a breather at the next yogurt bar, which implies that there are many yogurt bars. Yeah, which we've already discussed in great detail. <laughs> I, I loved Patsy in this issue, her, her confidence and, and uh, what's the word for it? Joie de vivre? Yeah, I think she uh, joies her vive. Yeah, it's infectious. It's, it's good. I agree. Also, I googled her phrase, and I couldn't find any references to it, so I don't know if that's just something that they made up. The way that I read it was that a Grim Grundy would be a reference to Mrs. Grundy, Archie's prim and proper teacher from the Archie comic books. Oh. And uh, there's a weird revamp of Mrs. Grundy in the new Riverdale series, which I haven't actually watched, but I think I watched the first episode with Lisa, and. Mrs. Grundy is, like, young and hot and I think is having an affair with Archie, which is just weird as fuck. Yeah. (laughs) You struck me silent. I'm sorry. Uh. Yeah. It could also be a reference to Solomon Grundy, who, to the best of my knowledge, is not sleeping with Archie, but I haven't been reading the comics lately. I appreciate your intellectual honesty. Well, I wouldn't want to do anything to jeopardize the show's journalistic integrity. Patsy has another really fun line on page 10, where she says, 
Jeepers, knocking over banks is becoming a new fad here in the Big Apple. I wonder if that means disco is going out of style. And it was. So, well noted, Patsy. Mm-hmm. I know, I was, I was thinking that would have been a nice timestamp. I don't know if it's my favorite. I think it probably is the Grim Grundy's one. But Namor had a nice bit of sass when he is fighting the Hulk. It's not very polite of him. But the Hulk is saying that he's going to smash him, and Namor replies, In order to fulfill your repugnant boast, you must lay hands on me, and that, you grotesquery, you never will do. Yeah, that was a good zinger. Damn! Namor is feeling his sass. I appreciated that turn of phrase as well. Every issue of a Defenders comic book has one character who has to act out of character in a way that furthers the plot. To paraphrase the Fat Boys from Crush Groove, they've just got to be a sucker. In this issue, who did you have as your sucker? So, despite the fact that Steve is at his steviness on the first panel, when he doesn't acknowledge getting his life saved by his teammates and instead says that he's responsible for all of the good things, mm-hmm. there is a scene at the end when they're close to the end of the uh, the paper towel roll where the, the wadded up dryer sheet is. <laughs> Where Steve just pretty much loses it. He's like, you know, essentially, fuck, we've made it this far. And now I don't know how to stop this thing. And he shouts, I do not know. (laughs) (laughs) With regards to how to defeat the enemy. And I was just like, whoa, what? Maybe that was just somebody else using their ventriloquism. (laughs) Maybe, but that's that was what I had. I had Steve for the sucker for I do not know. I think that is a good choice. I had Namor for a couple of reasons. First of all, it looks like he is agreeing with the delegates from the Vichy Ogion government at the beginning when they're assembled in Tunnel World and you've got the guy saying, what do we care if you folks are free or who the ruler is? You've only made it worse for the rest of us. And Namor says, their attitude is understandable, friend. That does not seem like something Namor would say. Hmm. Yeah, good point. Like, shut the hell up. We've saved you. Imperious Rex, why are you being so ungrateful? Which is actually what he's reprimanding Eroica for saying. But I think even more out of character is when the fight is starting to heat up. And Steve says, Alas, as long as the Hulk is in the orb, the influence of the unnameable is dominant. For the dread name holds sway over the green one's consciousness. And Namor's reply is, If that's so, then our course is clear. All we need to do is slay the bestial one and the wizard, and the name will trouble us no more. So, for him going from zero to murder Hulk in, like, no seconds, that is not the same Namor that just last issue we saw fly into a rage and be like, we need to defend the Hulk at any cost. Mm -hmm. I know that he is mercurial and he is prone to a battle lust, But that kind of really quick abandoning of his allies. I know he and the Hulk have had their trouble in the past, but I don't see him being that quick to murder him. Yeah, that is a good point. I wouldn't see that either. So yeah, that was why I had Namor as my sucker. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion in this issue did you feel were most worthy of note? 
Well, despite Disco being in its death throes, I had Disco Kyle on page, what is that, page 12? Yeah, when he's in the studio. Yeah, just before he's about to drop a hot jam. It's a, it's a good look. He's got giant lapels. Mm-hmm. Some nicely pressed slacks. <laughs> yeah, he's sitting up on the windowsill and, yeah, just getting ready to lay down some tracks. Mm-hmm. I liked that look a lot. I wanted to go back to the uh, Vichy Ogion representative who is wearing a yellow and green tunic with a very distinctive collar, but more interestingly to me, a button-down bucket hat, which is a weird look. Yep, that was my other fashion of note. It's almost like one of those knit beer can hats, but if somebody had like crocheted buttons into it i don't know yeah to me it looks more like like the kind of bucket hat you might see mugs or send dog from uh cypress hill wearing but that it had been split down the middle and now has snap buttons affixed to it which is a weird thing to do to a hat like that sure is so yeah i had that and the guy that he's talking to actually is a wing head who i guess now that they're allowed to wear clothes just immediately went out and bought himself some bondage gear. <laughs> yeah. Good for him. It's just a very specific choice. Grew a, grew a nice uh, little Van Dyke. Yeah, it kind of completes the Rob Halford look for him. I also had the news vendor and his customer from page seven. They're dressed similarly, but the news vendor looks a lot like Sluggo Smith, but wearing sunglasses from the Nancy comic strip. Uh, which is maybe why he got a job in newspaper vending. And then his customer is wearing a nice green windbreaker over like a striped mime shirt and then a green driving cap. And uh, it's just a nice look. I like it. I, I don't know who the Sluggo character is, but uh, yeah, it's a good panel. Oh, you don't know who Sluggo is? Do you ever read Nancy? Yeah, but it's been a super long time and I don't really remember any of it. Oh, Sluggo is lit. Every issue of a Defender's comic has a best Defender and a worst Offender. In this issue, who did you have as the best and worst? Yeah, I feel like I don't get to say this a whole often, but for the best, I chose Steve, because ultimately he really figures it all out and uh, saves the day using his, his will, his, his wits, and his skills, uh, including his uh, brain surgery skills. I agree. I had him as the best defender as well. Yeah, using his surgical skills in a mystical capacity, I thought showed a fair amount of innovation, and I'm glad he's kept those skills up. Although I did get nervous with him just like traipsing around the, the Hulk's brain looking for that one synapse that the memory of that name was stored in and like just going through the various synapses and just like taking a little chunk out of every one of them like he was trying a chocolate sampler Oof. yeah it was also funny that he was so tired after that surgery he fell asleep inside the hulk's brain but <laughs> somehow like subconsciously did the spell to transport everybody back to tunnel world mm -hmm. well as he would be quick to point out he's just that good which is why he's the best. Yeah. Not, not because he would point it out, but because <laughs> he's just that good. Agreed. 
As a backup, I had Arawika, who also did very well, finally got to fly as it had been prophesied, although it must be kind of a ripoff that he can only do it within the Org of Omenon, which is shattered by the end of the issue. So there's the prophecy that says that he'll learn to fly, and then it is for like a three-minute span in which he has to fight two birds, and then that's it for it. Got to be kind of a bummer for the guy. Major bummer. But I thought he did a very good job, and also he did fight two very large bird creatures, which, wow, terrifying. Indeed. Conversely, who do you have as the worst offender? Well, I don't know why it surprises me that Kyle has just no concept of, like, why the court would have authority (laughs) uh, over people who think it's fine if you commit violence as long as you say the reasons are justified, which is basically (laughs) what he does. And also that he can't wear his heavily weaponized costume whenever he wants. Well, I think that's been his experience in the world. Yeah, true. But that's also part of why he's the worst. I think that's a fair choice. I had Namor as the worst for the reasons that I said in the Sucka category, because actually I misread the name of that category. (laughs) As my Sucka, I had actually had Valkyrie because she seems to take a, I think, uncharacteristic amount of solace from retail therapy. Not that there's anything wrong with people shopping and making themselves feel better that way. I understand that is what some people do. But Valkyrie grew up in a very different realm and wasn't indoctrinated in our consumer culture in the same way that Patsy was. So the fact that she would benefit from retail therapy in the same way seemed incongruous. So that was supposed to be my sucka, and Namor is the worst for all the reasons that I said he was a sucka. He's also a sucka, but he's also the worst. Oof, that's the worst sucka we got. Well, I mean, he tried to kill the Hulk, and he uh, sided with Vichy Ogion. So, big finger and fart noise for Namor. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Now, Corey, despite his performance in recent issues, I think we would both agree that the Hulk rules. But in this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? Yeah, in this issue, they were perhaps slightly more straightforward than they normally are. It's just really what he says, which is that Fishman talks when he should be fighting. That means that there is a time for action and there is a time for words, and you need to know the difference. Hmm. Very good. Very salient point by the Hulk. My choice for a Hulk rule was perhaps a tiny bit more circuitous. Um, I had his takeaway from this adventure being, Pet Sounds might be a little bit overrated, but it's still a pretty damn good Beach Boys album. (laughs) I had him learning that lesson from our friend Ned, who had subsumed his entire identity and lost it to the underpants monster. And to a lesser extent, during their trippy-ass adventure within the Hulk's mind, the gang had to really make sure that they didn't suffer ego loss. Uh, They instead needed to hold on to their ego, which seemed to be one of the underlying themes behind this entire arc. Hang on to your ego, or hold on to your ego, which was a track on the Beach Boys album, Pet Sounds, which in my mind is an overrated album, 
but still a very good album. And I'm gratified to see that the Hulk agrees with me. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't realize until I was an adult that it was pet sounds like you would have like a pet name for somebody. I just thought it was like, this doesn't sound like dogs or cats at all. <laughs> I thought the same thing. Because I think there were a lot of weird animal noise tracks mixed into the album. And there's a picture of him feeding goats on the cover. So, I mean, I think it might be both. Oh, man, that's misleading. How is it misleading? He's got a picture of him feeding goats right on the cover. I don't know. I I think it's like an interview or something or something I read in Rolling Stone where they're talking about like that was the joke. Like it was about that, that these were their pet sounds. Oh, yeah. Well, it's a rich tapestry. Yeah, good job, Hulk. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Corey, I have but one final question I must put to you. Mm. In the year of our Lord, 1980, and the month of our Lord, May, what Wong doings was Wong doing? So, despite him often having a real kind of global impact on arts or science or philosophy or politics or or culture at large, not so much in May of 1980, but what did happen was Hong and Steve made a bad choice, which was to enjoy a large amount of some strong Jamaican incense before going out to see the premiere of uh, Kubrick's The Shining. Oh, dear. Yeah. So that was on the the 23rd of the month. And uh, they left the theater, bellies distended from popcorn and Twizzlers, but just really fucking freaked out. Because it's a pretty scary movie, and they were, you know, under the influence. On the way home, Wong was just really in his head about the whole thing. Like, what does it all mean? And uh, the song Rock Lobster by the B-52s came on the radio. (laughs) And just that highly kind of repetitive nature of the lyrics, coupled with the kind of hypnotic surf rock vibes of the song, got him obsessing. Much like Jack Torrance in the movie The Shining (laughs) on the theme of repetition. Like, what does it all mean? And... He got home and he just couldn't stop himself. He just kept calling all the radio stations in town, just like, play Rock Lobster, play Rock Lobster. I need to know what the song means. And he pretty much single-handedly propelled that song to reaching 56 on the, uh, the top 100 charts. Wow. By the end of the month, he was at a loss and just finally got the song out of his head, replacing it with Love Stinks by the Jay Giles Band, which... Incidentally, surpassed Rock Lobster on the charts, weighing in at number 38, but that was completely unrelated to Wong's actions. What a month. What a month. <laughs> the front man for the Jay Giles band has, like, the best rock and roll name. Peter Wolf. That's so good. Oh, he's a... I didn't realize... I just thought he played a... I got the, the harmonica and the singers, the same guy. I think so. Okay. I might be wrong about that. If I am, I'll edit it out and no one will ever know. <laughs> no, I think, I think you're right. That is a pretty awesome name. Now as part of what Wong was up to in May of 1980. But before that, he was trying to chill Steve the fuck out and was doing a bad job. See, when Steve came back from Tunnel World, he was pretty freaked out. He was mentally exhausted. 
he just had a pretty bad trip double Dennis Quading the Hulk. <laughs> and uh, mostly, he was just freaked out by birds. Like, after dealing with Yutitnetian and Arawika's freaky winghead friends and seeing the harpy and the nilfim in action, he was just like, I, I just, I, I, I can't deal with this. Too many birds. Too many birds, Wong! And Wong was just like, okay, just calm down. Just chill out. I'll go. I'll get you a newspaper. You can just chill out and read the newspaper and relax the way you like to. Here, I opened it to the sports section for you. And Steve looks in the sports section and sees that, oh, the Flyers scored eight goals <laughs> against the Islanders. Oh, no. Uh, okay, okay, that, that's, that's fine. He looks down at the next article. Rookie of the year, Larry Bird. Oh. <laughs> So he flips to the special interest section, and he sees that a hot air balloon is about to make a transatlantic flight. And he's like, balloons fly, but th that's fine. Then he sees the name of the balloon, the Kitty Hawk. Oh, no. And he just is back to fully freaking out. So he turned on the TV. And on the TV, he happened to see an interview with the rock band Kiss. And he sees the drummer of Kiss is a kitty cat man. And he's like, hmm, birds are the natural prey of kitty cats. And so he, uh, he teleported Peter Chris <laughs> over to the sanctum and paid him to hang around there and just scare off any birds that happened to come by. Now, at first, Peter Chris was pretty upset to end up teleported away. But uh, once he heard Steve's offer and found out he'd be eating Wong's cooking, for, uh, and living rent-free, he was like, yeah, this Steve guy does seem kind of like a dangerous egomaniac, but so is Gene Simmons, and <laughs> I gotta say, I prefer this Steve guy. So he tendered his resignation and quit as Kiss's drummer. After that, Steve started calming down. He felt that the kitty cat man would be able to protect him from any birds that came near his house. So he calmed down. He's like, Wong, Let's go see a movie. I hear there's a new romantic comedy called Shining. That looks like a real treat. <laughs> and that brings us up to uh, where you took over. Yeah, nice. Man, that bear pig blowjob man from The Shining is still one of the freakiest things that I've ever seen. Just that it's that one, like, one second moment and that it looks directly at the camera. It's so freaky. There's just no context for it, and I think about it all the goddamn time. Yeah, I haven't seen that movie in ages, but it still pops up. Yeah, that that is the one image from it. The whole movie was really well done and very creepy, but yeah, that uh, bear pig blowjob, man. <laughs> yep. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Corey, and thank you for joining us, listeners. We'll be back next week with. I think I may have done the math wrong on this, but I think it's going to be episode 200 of Tighten Up the Defense. It'll be the 260th episode we've done because we have 60 episodes of Teen Titan Wasteland and some bonus episodes. But still, uh, episode number 200, that's, uh, that's quite a milestone. It's our bicentennial. Mm -hmm. Or for you Canadian listeners, that's quite a kilometer stone. I guess that's for the rest of the world, actually, right? 
Yeah, good point. I don't know. Maybe we'll figure out something different to do for that one. But uh, it's been a heck of a ride, and thank you for joining us for it thus far. If you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com. Or if you have physical mail for us, you can send that to Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. You can also reach us on many different parts of the social media. Just, uh, I don't know, do your best. Poke around. Solve that mystery. Uh, how do you find us? Mm, I bet you can figure it out. Just look in the places where you might expect to see us, and hey, we're probably there. And if not, there's one other place you can look, and that's inside your heart. I guarantee we'll be there. Hey, guys. Hey. It's nice in here. In your heart. Thanks for letting us stay. Yeah. Um, you wouldn't happen to have any dryer sheets, would you? <laughs> if you'd like to support the show monetarily, you can do so at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There's the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W, because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That is the Howard the Duck podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa. And, uh, yeah, there's just a whole bunch of other video reviews of comic books and bonus podcasts and things like that on there. If you kick down some money, then you get access to it. But more importantly, from my perspective anyway, it's a nice way for you to let us know that you appreciate the work that we do on the show and would like us to continue to be able to do it and would like me to continue to be able to buy groceries. So, uh, thank you very much for that. If you would like to support the show non-monetarily, why don't you leave us a review in a place? A place where a review can be left, hopefully, but if you're not sure, just uh, do your best to leave a review there. And if the manager comes over and talks to you, you tell them, you're not my real dad, and push them down. Don't push them down, you'll get in trouble. But tell them that they're not your real dad, because probably they're not. But if they are, what a way to find out, huh? <laughs> Yeah, we are up to, I think, like, last I checked, 176 reviews on Apple Music. We have a five-star rating, so thank you for that. Wow. It's a long shot, but if we could get up to 200 for our 200th episode, I think that would be a pretty fun kilometer stone for us. So if you haven't left us a review there yet and you have Apple Podcasts, then... uh why not leave us a five-star review? Because uh, I think it would be cool to see what happens. I don't know if they send us some balloons or some kind of a gift certificate when we get to 200, but I'm curious to find out. So, with your help, we'll all find out whether I get a balloon. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you. And until next time, you'll find me pulled up at the sour cream bar. Yogurt Parade! <laughs> yes, Corey. Yogurt Parade us, everyone. Bye, guys. Bye. And they knew it. Oh, booty. Too many loots, man. Oh, man.
whoever wrote blowing me up with her love would be so happy that you confused his work with Bootsy Collins. Uh, on too many ludes. I'd still take that, man. If I, I could be compared to Bootsy Collins on too many ludes, any day of the week. I didn't recognize it from just that's the base <laughs> that's the base track to JC Chase's masterpiece. Oh, that's how it starts. Boom. Boom. Oh, it's, been, it's been too long. I'll put Girls that on the radio. Sex away. <laughs> you back yourself into me. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit. You're more than just a pretty face. You're better than a fantasy. And I say I I you know. Yeah. Uh etc. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, pretty good. Yeah, I better have some more of this coffee. <laughs> good idea. <laughs> Should tamper tamper that uh that that accelerant with a some whiskey. Oh no, I'm drinking the whole thing through a dryer sheet, so it's fine. Oh, that way the smell doesn't get to your parents. I get it. Exactly. <laughs>